I have a middle of the night routine myself, which is, is good for people to know because we don't want to just lay there in bed for two hours because then we'll start to associate our bed with being awake. Mm. So we got to have some techniques in our back pocket for when we do wake up in the middle of the night, or even if you are having problems falling asleep at the beginning of the night. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined the line later today by sleep expert, Dr. Amy Bender. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the weeks that were. Lots going on, and obviously, I've kind of rushed through this the past couple of weeks, and I feel like for good reason. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes, but lots going on, and I want to get you up to speed on what's new around here. So, With that being said, coaching is essentially a wrap, at least for the foreseeable future. All of my guys, gals, collegiate, uh, high school, professional, they are all off where they need to be. So a little bit bittersweet. I'm not going to lie. I kind of thrived in the chaos because I just love having people around. I love having my athletes around. They're very much like my family. So, you know, the last year and a half where I have people around for extended periods or I get these times where I wouldn't normally have them and I've got them in. Uh, It's a little weird not having a lot of people around right now. I got Jacob, my race car driver, and that's about it. But, you know, excited for all of them to be where they need to be. Hopefully they're going to go and thrive uh, in their upcoming seasons. So coaching has basically got a bow on it for right now, and it's going to give me some time to, to knock out some other things that, quite frankly, need to be focused on right now. So coaching is done. Training, uh, myself, is going exceedingly well. Just got a new program from my guy Mike Camperini. Really enjoying working with him. He's a very sharp young man. Perhaps most importantly in all this, it's not just that he's smart. It's one program I don't have to write. (laughs) You know, and as a coach, a lot of times you joke around that your program is the last one to get written. Well, that is definitely true in my case. So it's nice to have somebody else where I am more of the priority. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to program exercises for myself that I don't like. And if there's something I don't like, I can just blame it on him. So that's going well. Kids' soccer season is going well. Cade's team is okay. <laughs> it's a first, second grade boys team, and they are a squirrely little bunch. Um, but it's been fun because even through all that, I can see some growth and improvement in a lot of them. So I'm enjoying that. The girls have definitely grown quite a bit over the course of the year. Really fun to watch Kendall get better and better. She's really applied herself, I feel like, since early summer when she did a little bit of work with Meg's in the gym, you know, to start getting a little bit more serious about it, not like over the top crazy serious, but putting a little bit more effort, you know, just showing a little bit more dedication. So it's been fun because she's gotten a lot better, actually scored last week, had two goals in one game. And, you know, I can't remember, honestly, the last time that girl scored in a game and she scored twice in one. So very excited for her. Uh, And then that was kind of culminated in the fact that yesterday her and I took a little road trip to IU Got to see Megs, got to see my boy, Danny O'Rourke, got to watch a girls' soccer game. So she really enjoyed that. Honestly, I don't know what she enjoyed more. She just enjoyed like the one-on-one time and the road trip aspect of it, or if she enjoyed the game, but just a really fun day getting to hang out with her. She got to watch the boys' team train a little bit. She got to watch the girls' team play and got to listen to her favorite music in the car. So just all in all, a really fun day with her. And then last but not least... I think a little transparency is in order here because one of my big things is being real about like what's going on, what is, you know, what social media is really all about and, you know, constantly like flashing this highlight reel. So, man, in the interest of kind of sharing why I've been a little bit more abrupt or a little bit rushed with these intros lately is, man, there's just been a lot going on, uh, a lot weighing on my conscience. The move is obviously right around the corner. And it's not just us, right? We're going into a brand new space that's getting built out. We're moving in, which is akin to like moving in with a friend or a loved one. Like that's just like this new weird experience. So we've got the move going on and all of those little pieces that go into that. You know, about two weeks ago, our afternoon coach, Eric Huddleston, found out he was getting hired by the Indiana Pacers. So if you're keeping tabs here, I think that's our last... Five coaches have been hired by either Google, 
uh, Google Exos, Atlanta Hawks, the Indiana Pacers, and uh, a very high-level training baseball training facility out of Atlanta. So we're not losing trainers to like Lifetime Fitness down the road. So uh, it's going to be weird not having E around. He is one of the most pure coaches that I have worked with in the sense that, I mean, he interned with me, spent a lot of time with me, then went to Texas Tech, went to IU, but then spent an entire summer with me in the trenches when we were getting the basketball program off the ground, has now been at IFAST for three more years. So, you know, it's hard losing a coach, losing a friend, trying to replace someone. Um, (laughs) I think most people that own a gym would tell you that the hardest part of, of owning and operating a gym is managing people, you know, like the finances and the marketing and the selling, like those can be difficult. And sometimes the training and keeping up with that can be challenging, but man, the hardest part is just managing and getting the right people in place. So I've had that. And then last week I got just really kind of devastating news. If you followed my workouts over the summer and the guys that I've been working with, Ed Sumner has put in just an incredible amount of work, just really bought into taking care of his body, was in a great position to not only contribute, but to play good minutes for the team and uh, went out and, and was in a scrimmage and tore his Achilles. So, I mean, that was really kind of like the nail in the coffin last week. I just didn't know what to say still processing it. It was very fresh. I mean, Ed and I have a very strong relationship. You guys can tell. I mean, you you have listened to me for hopefully at least a couple episodes now, if not a couple years, or followed my work. And I mean, my athletes are like my family. I've got my real family, you know, Jess and Kate and Kendall, Finster. You know, I've got my regular family, but then my athletes are very much like my family. So to hear that when he when he hit me up, it was just very hard for me to process. So, you know, lots going on here. And again, I don't tell you this to seek sympathy. Uh, it's just it is what it is. But I tell you that because I feel like transparency is important. And as a coach, you know, we revel in our athletes wins. And, you know, sometimes it's not always puppies and balloons. Sometimes you take some L's and you know, that in particular was a big loss because I felt like we'd done everything in our power to take care of that guy, to make sure he was in great shape. And for something fluky like that to happen was really hard. So that is what's going on. You know, like I said, everybody has bad days. I'm incredibly grateful for where I'm at. I know Ed's going to come out of this stronger than ever. I know we're going to get through this move and we're going to find a great coach. But yeah, you know, sometimes things aren't perfect. And I want you to know that. So if you're ever struggling or you ever know like, oh man, Like this would never happen to Mike or Bill or Eric Cressy or whatever. Like things happen to us too. um, And just know that it's part of the process. So with that being said, I'm going to shut up now. We're going to take a quick break. And then we're going to jump into this awesome episode with Dr. Amy Bender. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me. Or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple. Restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you will be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. 
Award-winning sleep scientist Dr. Amy Bender is bursting with evidence-based insights that will play an integral role in creating your new sleep strategy. After spending over 15 years studying sleep through many avenues, including working as a sleep technician, clinical research, written publications, interviews for stories in Oprah Magazine, and public speaking appearances, Dr. Bender has an intimate relationship with the science. Maybe more importantly, her ability to translate that science to the field is evident through her successful work with NHL, Canadian national team athletes, and other Olympic athletes. So in this show, it only makes sense that Amy and I are going to take a deep dive into the world of sleep. We start by discussing the role of sleep, the sleep phases we go through, and she provides some general guidelines on how much is really enough. From there, we talk about the role of wearables and sleep tracking, various sleep issues that people struggle with, naps, supplements, and so much more. This show was not only very informative, but incredibly practical as well, so I really think you're going to enjoy it. But enough for me, let's do this. Amy, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra, which is a sleep health technology company. We're a startup. I've been in the sleep field for 15 years, and I'm also, I work a lot with athletes. I was a former athlete myself. Um, I played volleyball and basketball in high school and then ended up playing college basketball and did an Ironman, have done some mountaineering, not as extreme these days with my three kids, yeah. but <laughs> that'll slow but yeah. you down a little bit, right? Yeah. It's more, you know, family related activities, but yeah. um, yeah, that's a little bit about myself. That's awesome. So talk to me. Normally I ask the people on the show, like what led you to physical preparation, but you're in the world of sleep science. So what drew you to that field? My aunt actually was a sleep technologist. I was kind of at a crossroads in my career. I was looking for something just a little bit more challenging, mentally challenging. Right. And she brought me to her sleep lab and showed me what it looks like with all of these electrodes on the patient, everything that we're measuring for sleep. So, we're, you know, we're looking at EEG brainwave activity. We're measuring eye movements. We're measuring muscle activity, respiratory, how you're breathing. Showed me kind of what that translated to on the screen and how you would score the different stages of sleep. And I was pretty much hooked. And so I ended up going back home, calling every sleep lab that I could to see if I could volunteer and then started volunteering in a sleep lab, was still fascinated and ended up landing a job as the sleep technologist at a sleep deprivation lab at Washington okay. State University. So that was fascinating. So I was in the research track more on the sleep technologist side. So helping or hooking up participants with electrodes, scoring their sleep for different stages but was absolutely fascinated by the research. And we had experiments where we were sleep depriving people for up to 62 hours. Oh my. So <laughs> two full nights without sleep. And it was just very interesting to me. And so I ended up getting my master's and PhD in experimental psychology, focusing on sleep EEG, which led me to a postdoc in Calgary working with Canadian Olympic team athletes and optimizing their sleep, which then led me to being a scientist at a counseling center, which was amazing. Like I wanted to apply sleep interventions for better mental health. And then that led me to my current role at Cerebra as the director of clinical sleep science, where we're looking at really helping people sleep better, people with sleeping disorders, but also the general population as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you kind of answered my question because I was, I always like to get people's like journey and their path along the way. So you kind of filled me in there, but man, I want to dive in because I have so many questions for you. I know I sent these to you and these are just the questions I've kind of scripted. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be follow-ups in there, but what I'd love to do is just start with some very general education. And this is kind of a two-parter right off the bat. Number one, why is sleep so important for our bodies? And then what are some general recommendations you give people with 
regards to how much sleep is necessary on a daily or maybe a weekly basis? Mm -hmm. Well, we know sleep takes up about a third of our lives, you know, so if you're living to age 90, we're talking about 30 years. And so it's something you should be paying attention to. I think right. that's an important element. If sleep does not serve an absolute vital function, then it's the biggest evolutionary mistake that has been ever made. That was by um, Dr. Alan Rechschafen. So a lot is going on. It's important. We haven't evolved to not need sleep. You know, we're still talking about seven to nine hours for an adult, even more if you're younger, more like eight to 10 if you're an adolescent. And we do think athletes need even more because of the physical and mental demands on the body. There are important things going on. So number one, the glymphatic system is active during sleep. And what that means is neurons in our brain actually shrink in order to allow the glymphatic system to clean up some of these toxins that have accrued across the day. Um, so that's a really important element is our brain is like a dishwasher during sleep. It's cleaning out a lot of those buildup and toxins that are occurring. As far as like physical effects of sleep, we, we know hormones are optimized during sleep. So we have a reduction in stress hormones with sleep extension. We have an increase in testosterone, for example, with sleep extension. And the opposite is true when you're sleep restricted is you're, you're not capitalizing on a lot of these hormones that are occurring during sleep. And it also relates to appetite hormones as well. So if you're trying to lose weight and you're not optimizing your sleep, you know, you're, let's say, restricting your sleep, getting up early to exercise a bunch, and you're only getting five, six hours of sleep, you know, those appetite hormones are impacted. So we have less leptin, that feeling of being full when we are sleep deprived, we have more ghrelin, the feeling of being hungry. This leads to more hunger during more cravings, you know, so a lot is going on. And we typically see with poor sleep or not enough sleep, we see a lot of health impacts such as higher risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, et cetera. That's cool. So one of the things when you're talking about athletes, because obviously that's a population I'm passionate about as well. I read this article years ago. Uh, it was probably two or three years ago now, and it was probably more relevant then. But Roger Federer was talking about one of the keys to his longevity. And he said, you know, that person was interviewing him and said, well, what, what do you feel like has changed? And he said, it's hard because he has four kids. I think he's got two sets of twins, but he said, I've made it a commitment to sleep nine hours a night. And so I think that was a new thing for him, but he was just raving about how like, literally this is one of the few things that I've changed other than maybe managing my body a little bit differently. But that's one of the biggest things he felt like was impacting his success later on in his career. Absolutely. I actually present a slide with athletes along the, the uh, x-axis. We have a number of athletes and then the amount of sleep that they're getting mm. on the vertical axis. And Roger Federer is one of those people that I present. And in, in that particular graph, I think it was even 11 to 12 hours that wow. he was reporting to get. Interestingly too, when he traveled to important events, he would bring his family along but he had the luxury of staying in a totally separate <laughs> house. <laughs> yes. So that I believe he has twins too. So I yes. think, um, you know, so he was very, very protective of that sleep opportunity and recovery, you know, when it came to prioritizing that. Yeah, no, I love it. So when you're evaluating someone, like we have diagnostics that we do in the performance side, how do you evaluate someone's sleep? And kind of along with that, what tools are available maybe on the consumer side, as well as maybe higher end options if somebody is really struggling or really wants to dive in and better understand the quality of their sleep? The gold standard that we use is polysomnography. So that's what I was talking about previously at measuring the brainwave activity, the muscle activity, the eyes, the chin activity, the respiratory, et cetera. Uh, so that is the gold standard. And typically you'll 
you'll see that in a sleep lab. So you'll okay. go to a sleep lab, you'll be tested for a sleep disorder, and they will put all of these wires, you know, I think at one time I counted, it was like 35 different wires that they're, oh that they're hooking you up with to study your sleep. One of the cool things about Cerebra is actually, we have this technology to be used in the home. And so typically we'll see a first night effect. So if you're sleeping in a new environment, your sleep is not the same as if you were sleeping in your own home environment. So I'm really excited about this technology that we have is the capability to measure sleep with polysomnography in the home and make it self-applied so the patient themselves can apply it watching videos and just make it very simple, but still be able to collect that important information like the brain waves that are occurring during sleep. From that point, Below, we also have home sleep apnea tests, for example, which is just looking, not really measuring sleep at all. It's just measuring your breathing activity and your oxygen saturation. So that would be specifically for a case of someone who's high probability of having sleep apnea, where you stop breathing during the middle of the night. And then from there, it kind of goes to the wearable devices, the consumer devices. So a lot of times there's a lot of uh, actigraphy, where we're looking at movement during the night, you're wearing a wristwatch device. We also have, you know, like aura ring, there's the whoop, which is more of a wrist device. Um, And those are kind of proxies of sleep. They aren't really measuring sleep directly. They're really, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of these in the sense that it's gets the word out that sleep is important. It's a way to track your sleep. However, the accuracy of these are, are questionable. They aren't perfect by any means because, you know, we're not looking at that brainwave activity. So there are those options for consumers. We're actually working on developing a EEG wearable device that can be used for people with insomnia or sleep apnea. And we also want to get it out to the general public. Of course, that's going to take a lot of time, but we, we, we believe in the value of actually looking at the brain waves. Um, yeah. And that's kind of something that these other devices are getting better at, you know, they're right. not obviously looking at brainwave activity, but they are getting better at capturing sleep time which is what they do a pretty good job of is overall sleep duration. However, when it comes to the sleep stages, the research shows that they're just not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, that that was actually going to be my follow-up there is, have you looked at some of these higher end devices and then compared them to more of the wearables like an aura ring or a whoop band or anything like that? Yes. There's been a lot of research on that. I think there was one recent paper, maybe we can put the link in the show notes, but I think it was seven different wearable devices versus polysomnography. And that was the conclusion is that they're good at capturing sleep duration, but when it comes to the stages of sleep, there's a lot to be desired. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So something that I've personally always been interested in is about the breakdown of your sleep. So, for instance, we know we have various phases. We've got light, we've got deep, we've got rim. But when you're looking at somebody or you're looking at their evaluations, is there some sort of ideal or optimal balance or ratio you're looking at for those? It's a good question. And I I feel like it will take a long time to actually <laughs> figure out whether that's even possible. Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, yeah. Our sleep architectures kind of primarily divided into non-REM sleep, which is composed of non-REM one, which is the lightest stage of sleep, non-REM two, which takes about 50% of our sleep time across the night, and then non-REM three, which is our deepest state of sleep. Uh, We also have REM sleep, which is kind of the other main component, which is rapid eye movement sleep, where you're dreaming during the middle of the night. Although you can kind of dream in any stage of sleep, this is where you'll wake up and remember your dream. And so typically a person will get about 5% uh, stage one. So that lightest stage of sleep, they're going to be getting 50% stage two, about 20% stage three, and then around 25% of REM. And this, this can vary, this varies so much even within people. And so that's why it's really hard to, 
to like come up with a specific number of what you should be aiming for, because we actually don't have a lot of control of how these stages are distributed across the night. And so, you know, I get a lot of people messaging me saying, what's wrong with me? I only have five, like I only had 5% deep sleep last night, or I only had 5% REM sleep last night. And in reality, they're probably getting a lot more. It's just the accuracy of the device may be a little bit off. Um, But what we're really interested in is going way beyond these sleep stages and looking at sleep depth on a continuous measure using our odds ratio product, ORP sleep depth, which is really a lot more accurate than the different sleep stages. So I think we have a lot of information that we're collecting with polysomnography, and it's a matter of how do we utilize this information by just not reporting, you know, going beyond reporting about the sleep stages. Yeah. So with that being said, do you ever take a look at, again, you've got, you've got higher in tech than most of us have access to right now is if somebody's using one of these wearables that they have now, is it more of just like a, an awareness, but also like a red flag type thing where if somebody's constantly saying, Oh my gosh, I'm getting like 10 minutes of deep sleep a night. Like maybe that's something we need to dive deeper into. Is that the way that you would use that? Or is it, if somebody's showing that you're like, okay, maybe we need to dive deeper and get you into a sleep study or something more specific. I I would say, yes, I think that's a good utility. If for example, you notice something abnormal on the wearable, like for example, they're only getting 5% deep sleep or 5% REM. And it's accompanied by daytime symptoms. So for example, they are very tired during the day. They need a lot of caffeine to get them through. They're feeling like taking a nap in the morning, you know, which is not kind of an optimal time within our circadian rhythm. We should be alert during that time. Um, I think combining it with some of those daytime symptoms would be hey, this is probably a red flag that I should get this checked out from a sleep professional. Um, You know, I think it's useful in testing interventions as well. So for example, you know, we have to take the information with a grain of salt, but I think being able to continuously monitor this day after day and also track that with what activities am I doing? And is it showing an improvement in my sleep quality? I think that's also a good use of it as well. Just not taking the numbers as absolute truth and fact, but are there interventions or things I'm doing during the day that are showing based on these trends that yes, looks like when I don't drink alcohol before bedtime is a good thing for my overall sleep quality. Yeah, I like that a lot. And like you said, even if you're using something lower end as a proxy, it can start to make you more aware and help you start to better understand like the lifestyle things that are either positively or negatively impacting your sleep, right? Absolutely. I mean, if we take like I've been working with an NBA team and that was pretty much what they were saying is that these wearables are really starting the conversation about sleep. They are helping us track sleep, helping us to prioritize sleep. That is the benefit of these devices is to increase awareness, to potentially use it as what interventions may be helping improve my sleep. But one thing we haven't talked about actually is the feedback you're getting from the devices can also impact your performance. So for the example of the team I'm working with in the NBA, you know, I don't want them wearing this device during playoff time. You know, like I don't want the athletes to see that their sleep score was a 40 right before they're going to play play in a playoff game. So we do have to consider the feedback and the individual athlete themselves. Are they more anxious by having this device on Are they thinking more about their sleep, which is then making them worry and affecting their sleep quality? So we do have to kind of not just use it for everyone. We have to consider some of those factors. 
Yeah, it's just like training, right? You can't train every person the same. So in your case, you can't take these broad strokes and apply it in the same way to every single athlete. You kind of have to customize, you know, how you use the tool or how you provide feedback. It's individualization, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Love it. So two of the most common issues that I hear of when it comes to sleep are number one, inability to fall asleep, or number two, waking up in the middle of the night and then not being able to go back to sleep. So do you have any strategies or suggestions for people that struggle with one of those issues? I have a middle of the night routine myself, which is, is good for people to know because we don't want to just lay there in bed for two hours because then we'll start to associate our bed with being awake. Mm. So we got to have some techniques in our back pocket for when we do wake up in the middle of the night, or even if you are having problems falling asleep at the beginning of the night. So here's what I do. I have three young kids. It's a common occurrence where some kid will wake me up during the <laughs> middle of the night and I'll be wide awake, you know? So what I'll do is I'll, I'll do a breathing technique. So the first thing people want to try is a breathing technique, because if we're breathing out longer than we're breathing in, so the exhale is longer than the inhale, it's going to activate our parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxation yep. system. So there's a couple of different breathing techniques people can use. The first one would be maybe snake breathing. So you breathe in and then like hiss out like right. a snake would be one because you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. There's also the four, seven, eight breathing, which I like. So you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven seconds, breathe out for eight seconds. And you repeat that four times. And that's been shown to kind of activate that parasympathetic nervous system. There's also uh, kind of like five finger breathing where you trace your fingers and you kind of inhale on the up and then exhale on the down. And it kind of gets you to use a lot of your senses. So you're using touch because you're tracing your fingers, mm. you're concentrating and you're not focusing on why am I not sleeping right, right now? Right. So a breathing technique is good to have in your back pocket, but also have a cognitive technique. So I like the cognitive shuffle. So you wake or you think of a word such as bedtime. You imagine all the objects that you can that start with B. So ball, baby, banana, bus, and you move mm -hmm. on to the next letter E when you can't think of any more objects. So E, eagle, egg, ear, then you move on to D. And hopefully by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll be sound asleep. But if that doesn't happen, which that happens to me, you know, every so often where right. I've done the breathing technique, I've done the cognitive technique, and I'm still wide awake. You want to get up out of bed, do a relaxing activity in low light. So maybe read a paper book and only return back to bed when you're sleepy. And so again, that's, you know, you're not associating your bed with being wide awake. Right. You're returning back to bed when you're sleepy. And there's been times where, you know, I've woken up at four in the morning and can't, I've tried the breathing. I've tried the cognitive technique. I've gotten up out of bed and I'm just not tired to go back to bed. So in those instances, I'll schedule a short 10 minute, 15 minute nap to kind of get me through some of that sleep deprivation. That's awesome. You know, we talked about kids earlier. I like the idea of that fingertip breathing because Sometimes my daughter will come in. It's very rare. When my son sleeps, he's asleep. But my daughter is one, like, sometimes she'll wake up randomly and I can tell, you know, she's tired. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I really like that because, you know, I talk to her about breathing techniques, but I could see how that integrates more of the senses and it almost has like this calming effect. Like, I really like that. That's cool. I have actually another, I've adopted or adapted the cognitive shuffle, which I didn't invent, but I've adapted it for kids because same thing for my kids, you know, they're like, oh, I can't go to sleep. What should I do? So I actually tell them to think of a color. So red, and then mm. imagine all the objects they can that are red. So it could be strawberry, raspberry, it could be like a red shirt or a red table, you know, right. and that is more, um, since they don't know how to spell necessarily, that's a way for them to just think of a color and start imagining objects. Yeah. And I didn't really talk about 
why this works, but it's kind of simulating what your brain does when you fall asleep. So you start kind of imagining these objects. So that's an element to this. And the other element is you're focused on something else other than being pissed off about being awake. <laughs> right. I love it. I love it. So what about the person that just can't fall asleep? right? They've done sleep hygiene. They've turned the screens off. They've stopped drinking caffeine at nine in the morning. It's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. They can't fall asleep. What do you do for people like that? It could be, so it could be insomnia related. So it could be, they have learned behaviors that make them a bit more anxious prior to bedtime. Mm. And so in that case, probably if this is a happening you know, it's taking you longer than an hour to fall asleep. This is happening three times a week. It's been occurring for a month or more. You know, it's worth it to get it checked out by a sleep professional. And there's also a number of programs online that people can use if they if they look for programs related to CBTI, so cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Okay. There are some online programs that they can use that will help kind of retrain their brain to be happy about going to sleep. The other thought that comes to mind would be someone with a evening chronotype. So just biologically speaking, their melatonin isn't being released until later, which actually does happen a lot in adolescence. So we have a shift from early childhood where melatonin is released earlier, you know, our kids go to bed early versus in adolescence, we have a shift more towards evening, eveningness. And so melatonin isn't really being released until later. And we see that peak in eveningness around 1920 is where we'll see that, Sounds you know, we right. shift more <laughs> towards going, going to bed later. And then we have a shift more towards um, morningness as we get older, like in our fifties and up. So that is a thought that comes to mind if someone's just laying there, you know, maybe they're going to bed too early. And I think that's kind of been ingrained in our society just because we are more of a morning type society. You know, people got to get up early, the early bird wins, right. you know, but it could be that these individuals are just, they're just, uh, melatonin isn't being released until later so that if they did go to bed later, they wouldn't be having this insomnia, which there are things we can do to adjust to an earlier time as well. So getting light in the morning is going to help shift our circadian rhythms earlier, yep. blocking light at night with potentially blue light blocking glasses and potentially using melatonin, like a really small 0.5 milligrams of melatonin will help shift those individuals to a more normal sleep schedule. Got it. So you talked about chronotypes, and this is something that I'm legitimately fascinated by because I had a friend in college. First off, I was laughing when you said 19 to 20, because guaranteed that was my peak PM chronotype okay. for various yes. reasons, right? But one of my best friends in college, like we could be out and doing stuff till who knows what time. And every morning he was up at 6.30. Like he's been like that his entire life. So when you talk about chronotypes, is there is there like kind of like a breakdown as far as, I feel like I'm asking a lot of breakdown questions, but is there a split? Like what percentage of the population is trending towards AM, PM? I'm sure the bulk is probably in the middle, but is there a breakdown like that at all? Yes, there is. So about 15% are early birds, 15% are night owls, and then the rest kind of fall in between 70%. Gotcha. Okay. So another thing you mentioned was naps. And maybe it's just me. I've always been a big proponent of naps, but I also feel like sometimes these days they're getting a bad rap. And Maybe it's a societal thing, like early bird gets the worm, no rest, team, no sleep, all that stuff. What are your thoughts on naps? Are they helpful, harmful, somewhere in between? I am a huge proponent of naps. I actually recently posted something on my social media about this study that came out, which the media was running away with naps don't work. They don't help your performance. You know, that was kind of the conclusion of this study. And when you look at the details, they're trying to replace nighttime sleep with a 30 minute nap or a 60 minute nap. And they conclude that this doesn't help your performance during the day. 
Well, number one, naps are usually considered daytime sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> and number two, you can't substitute a 30 or 60 minute nap for a full night of sleep. So of course, 60 minutes of sleep is not enough to help your performance during the day, you know? So right. it, they do get a bad rap, but I, I'm a huge proponent of naps. I think they're amazing for athletes. And in our research, we found that only about 20% of athletes are napping you know, two or more times per week and the rest are, are not really napping at all. So this is a way I think as an athlete, especially if you're a swimmer, for example, and you have to get up early for training, we want to use a nap, a longer afternoon nap to supplement some of that nighttime sleep that was lost. So that's one situation where you could use a nap to kind of, because a lot of times, yeah, offset and you can't go to bed early enough. You can't yeah. go to bed, like just fall asleep at 8 p.m. Right. to get the amount of sleep that you would need to then wake up at, you know, 4.30 or 5 a.m. Right. So uh, a way to supplement some of that lost nighttime sleep, but also a way to boost performance, alertness. If you're getting a normal amount of nighttime sleep, it's going to be beneficial in those situations, even if you're you're having a sufficient amount of nighttime sleep. And the research shows it helps your alertness, your performance, it boosts your mood. And so keeping that nap, we can talk about duration as well, you know, trying to keep that nap pretty short under 30 minutes. So you're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep where you wake up feeling groggy and, you know, it might take you an hour to kind of be alert again. Right. So that would be an important component for those taking longer naps. You want to set maybe an emergency alarm, but you want to try and wake up naturally from that, from that longer nap. So around 90 minutes, that kind of completed sleep cycle, but try and wake up naturally, which will then make you more alert than if you were to kind of set your alarm and wake up in a deep state of sleep. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Cause I feel like you talked about the NBA and I have a lot of basketball players that I work with. It's kind of ingrained in their culture, right? Is like that PM, like afternoon nap, especially on a game day, because they have to go and play at seven, eight o'clock at night. So that 90 minute nap is really helpful for them because we also know on the back end, sometimes they're traveling and they have all those other things going on. It's hard to get the sleep regularity that you would like. So absolutely performance enhancing there, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're just not able to get enough nighttime sleep, you know, yep. so that longer night night is really important for them. And the, and the team I was working with, you know, they had COVID testing, early in the morning, which they weren't too happy about, but the nap is a way to supplement some of that uh, sleep loss at night. I love it. I love it. So we know that the supplement industry is like a multi-billion dollar space and supplements that proclaim to optimize or improve sleep are becoming more and more relevant. So in your opinion, are there supplements that are must-haves when it comes to improving sleep or is it more of a kind of as-needed basis? I think it's more of an as needed basis. Personally, I don't take any supplements to help me sleep at night, but for some of the athletes I'm working with, I'm also on the scientific advisory board for a a nutrition company that is wanting to develop a supplement for better nighttime sleep. And I've done a lot of research actually in what supplements are legit versus what aren't. Um, so the the two that I, I would recommend would be magnesium. So magnesium glycinate specifically, which yep. is good for athletes because it can help with muscle cramping. It can help shut off the brain and it also improves sleep quality. So glycinate on its own has been shown to improve uh, sleep quality. So magnesium glycinate is one, one that I would recommend in certain instances, Also tart cherry juice is another one that I think helps with recovery, but it can increase total sleep time. It can increase sleep quality. You know, there was one study that found this was in people with insomnia, but uh, they, they took eight ounces of tart cherry juice two times a day for two weeks. And they found that they were getting 84 minutes more of sleep per night, which is huge. 
So tart cherry juice is another one I think that that could be good for athletes. And those would be the two I would recommend. Melatonin, you know, is typically good for shifting circadian rhythms. So it's not super amazing at helping you fall asleep more quickly. You know, I think it's about an average of seven minutes uh, sooner that you fall asleep when you're taking melatonin. That could be another one if I'm working with, you know, a night owl, as we mentioned, to take that really small dose, no more than three milligrams of of melatonin, you know, but maybe start with that 0.5 milligrams. So those, those would be the three potential that I would use. I looked into chamomile. There wasn't a lot there of valerian root Mm. kind of mixed results. Ashwagandha was kind of an interesting one that, that looked promising. So that may be another one um, people could look into. We want to make sure that the quality of these supplements are good and they're not tainted with, with anything else that can be a concern. Right. I feel like ashwagandha is one of those things where it's kind of like on the radar for so many things, you know? So even if it's not a sleep thing, there seems to be a lot of other benefits, but no, I was taking notes while you're talking about this. I mean, as somebody that's used magnesium for an extended period, like crazy dreams, <laughs> you know, I feel like whenever you start to take that for a little bit, you kind of have oh, those interesting. Crazy, the crazy dreams. I don't know if it's just more high quality REM sleep or what, but that's always been interesting. And one other question I had, you know, whether it's magnesium or tart cherry juice, you know, sometimes you take something for a little while and then it plateaus or you lose the benefit. Have you done or seen anything that's like long-term with those? Like if you take tart cherry juice for like two years, do you see a decline in the benefits or does it stay about the same? Mm, That is very interesting. I actually don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there's been many kind of long-term studies to show a lot of the research, as I mentioned, is in people struggling with their sleep, ah, Okay, you know, so that may be very beneficial for them, but how that works with someone getting a decent amount of sleep already, uh, or good quality sleep already, not really sure about probably not as big of an effect in, right. in supplements in people already getting decent sleep. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting, right? It's like, there's the people that are on the low end that you're trying to bump up. And then there's people that are kind of in the middle and they're just looking for that little edge. So magnesium and tart cherry juice, if you're looking for the edge. Um, Okay. Now, hopefully in the future, travel is going to be a thing again. It's a little bit dicey these days trying to get around, especially if you want to go to different countries. But we all know if you've traveled at any period of time, especially if you travel across multiple time zones, jet lag is a real thing. So you had kind of mentioned melatonin before, but what tips do you have for optimizing sleep during travel? And especially with those dreaded like west to east flights? Mm -hmm. Well, number one, unrelated to jet lag, we do need to worry about the sleep environment at a new location. And so there's a couple of things you could bring And I posted a video on my Instagram about this when I was recently at a hotel in Winnipeg where the company is based. So there's a couple of things you could bring. Number one would be black electrical tape that you can tape over any of these light sources. For example, the smoke detector, the TV light, the microwave light, like all of these lights add up across the night. And so we want a dark cave-like environment. So bringing black electrical tape, bringing some binder clips, which can then clip the curtains together because there's always that kind of dreaded gap in um, (laughs) in the hotel environment. Um, Having potentially blue light blocking glasses to help, you know, the research shows that that's good at preserving some of that melatonin, having an eye mask, keeping your sleep environment cool, having earplugs, all of these things are important when you're in this new environment and help you sleep better. Now, when it comes to jet lag, uh, this is kind of a mismatch between your internal biology and the time zone that you're in. And so if we're talking about jet lag, the last time I traveled actually was right before the shutdown. And I went to the Netherlands. I was going to give a talk in the Netherlands 
and the conference ended up getting canceled, but I went anyway. And so there were a few things that I did to prepare for that trip. I'm based in Canada, so I was traveling east. Yep. And so when you're traveling east, you do want to do things earlier. So you want to wake up earlier. You want to try and go to bed earlier. And we're talking in three to four days prior to departure to start kind of adjusting your clock ahead of time. And so I was waking up early. I was actually exercising very early, which can also advance your circadian rhythm. And so there was like, I was part of a gym. So I signed up for a 5.30 AM class, <laughs> right. which I would never ever do normally, <laughs> but because I was traveling East exercise early in the morning, getting bright light early in the morning, and then blocking that light at night going to bed early, those types of things will be beneficial. Even having caffeine early in the morning will help adjust your circadian rhythm earlier. I, I didn't take melatonin, but I could have taken melatonin as well a couple hours before the bedtime. And I, prior to departure, I would try and adjust my schedule an hour. So if I normally, so three days prior to departure, if I normally woke up at six, I would try and wake up at five. I would, then I would try and wake up at four mm. and then three right before departure day. The other flight time is important here as well. So if I'm traveling east, I probably want to take an earlier flight. If I'm traveling west, I do not want to take an earlier flight because then I'm doing the opposite of what I need to do. Right. And I know, so sometimes there is flexibility in flight times. A lot of times you can't really deal with that, but that is something to consider as well. And then, you know, the opposite is true, like on the return trip. So as a part of this trip, I was in Spain right before I was like, I was in Spain. And then the next day, I think I was going to depart home. So it was perfect for me because they eat dinner later, yep. you know, they stay out later. And so my, I, I did the opposite. So I was trying to stay up later. Yep. I was trying to get light in the evening. I was trying to block light in the morning, you know, and try and do the opposite, even adjusting your meal times as well is going to help your jet lag symptoms in the end. So Making those adjustments if you're traveling east to do things earlier, if you're traveling west to delay is going to be beneficial for people. Yeah, I've always found, and I'm sure most people are like this, but traveling west has never been very hard. But anytime I've gone to Europe, and part of that is due to the fact that when I go, I have to go and work or lecture or whatever. So I've really tried to refine that process so that I'm not a total zombie on the first or second day that I'm there, you know? Yes. Um, and the reason it's it's easier traveling west is because our circadian rhythms are typically longer than 24 hours. And so mm. we would naturally be inclined to go to bed later. And it's that sunlight that helps regulate our circadian rhythms. That light in the morning kind of brings us back to a normal 24-hour schedule. Oh, but if okay. we were to be in a cave, we would be going to bed later and later and later each day because the majority of us have circadian rhythms longer than 24 hours. Very cool. I did not know that. Cool. Okay. So big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Amy Bender one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say um, one of the things I'm currently learning is how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To kind of go with your gut, like, does this make sense for me to not necessarily take on kind of prioritize and is this an essential thing for me or is it more distracting so I would say going with your gut and saying more no often would be a good piece of advice if I could pick a number two I would say if you're um if you have kids get a king-size bed <laughs> <laughs> yes because uh, it took me like seven years before I got a king size bed. My oldest is now nine and my youngest is four. And um, that is a good piece of advice for my <laughs> younger self would have been to get a king size bed way earlier on. Yes. Yes. I, I feel like that's one of the consistent themes I've gotten from the various sleep experts and books and courses that I've taken over the years is king size bed right? So you almost have your own defined space because mm -hmm. yeah, when my wife and I first met, we were literally sleeping in a twin bed. So 
not a lot of personal space there, you know, <laughs> you're trying to like get some sleep, doesn't work. So, okay. <laughs> Last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So five fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Okay. Okay. Number one, normally I ask, you know, what is your career highlight as a coach? So a little bit different angle here, but do you have a career highlight so far as a sleep practitioner or scientist? I would say recently uh, our team won the ASM Sleep Disruptors Change Agents Contest. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is a huge deal, right? they put out this contest for teams to come together and really try and change the way we diagnose and treat uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So I was kind of the team leader of this group. We had six people all across the world, basically. And we came up with some really good ideas to try and change the way we treat uh, sleep apnea, looking at more sleep depth with EEG metrics. So that would be, I guess that would be my highlight. And it just happened recently. That's pretty awesome. So you're like flying on a high right now. Yeah, I am. And, you know, it's like I received my big plaque and stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with our performance. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, number two, when I first came across your pro profile, it said Basketball Hall of Fame. So talk to me about that. Are you like a real baller or what? <laughs> so I did. I played uh, high school basketball. I was recruited by a couple of different colleges, um, but I ended up going to the community colleges of Spokane to start out. Okay. And we ended up taking second overall in in the tournament, like, amongst three different states at the time. And so I was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame with the Community Colleges of Spokane, Spokane Falls Community College. So yes, and then I transferred to Cal State San Bernardino and played basketball there at Division Two. That's awesome. So it is true. I am a Basketball Hall of Famer. That is awesome. Congrats, man. Very cool. Okay, number three, sleep hygiene. Legit or overrated? Absolutely legit. Okay. Uh, yes, it is legit. I think there are so many things we can do to optimize our sleep quality, and it starts with sleep hygiene. I mean, we know about the not drinking caffeine too late. You do that, it does impact your sleep quality. Right. If you drink alcohol too late, it'll help you fall asleep easily, but it will end up waking you up during the middle of the night. Yep. Getting lots of light in the morning has been shown to improve sleep quality. Getting exercise has been shown to improve sleep quality and sleep depth. So based on some of these sleep strategies, uh, sleep hygiene is a legitimate way to improve sleep quality. Love it. Love it. And we'll just cut that one part out. That's perfect. Okay. Okay. So number four, how did your sleep study go where you were wearing the crazy headgear every night. You wore that for like 30 some <laughs> days, right? How did that go? I did. I wore it for 31 days in a row. This was part of a study that we're actually running where we wanted people to wear our EEG device, which is what you would get in the home. This is yep. our technology that I was talking about previously for 20 days out of 25 nights. And so for me, I just kept going and going and wearing it. It was just a part of my life, like the habit, I guess, took place. Right. So I ended up wearing it for 31 days in a row. And we were tracking our sleep habits. They're talking about sleep hygiene earlier. Yep. So we were tracking our caffeine intake. We were tracking alcohol, exercise, our light exposure. We're also looking at heart rate variability to see how a lot of these lifestyle factors may impact uh, sleep depth was kind of the main outcome of that study and how from night to night, how much does this vary on right. a night to night basis and what could be driving some of that variability in sleep quality. So really interested. We had uh, about 20 people do the study where we were tracking uh, we had them do the questionnaire in the morning and the evening, tracking their activities. And we're also going to look at heart rate variability and reaction time performance. So they filled out and I filled out a reaction time test uh, two times a day. Okay. Very cool. Was it hard to fall asleep with it? You know, it's, 
it maybe no, at the start. I, yeah, I think at the beginning, and that's one thing we can look at too. We can look at was sleep, did sleep change from the first night to the second night? You know, we can look at that objectively. Personally, it wasn't too much of a nuisance for me at all. I know other people were like, get this thing off of me by the time the study was over. Right. Uh, so I think there's like different levels of sensitivity. But for me, um, it wasn't too bad. And eventually we want to develop like a miniaturized, almost like a Band-Aid that you kind of put on your forehead that'll be a lot more comfortable oh, that's than cool. having the device. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay, number five, last but not least, what's next for Amy Bender? Ooh, good question. <laughs> I'm really excited about the work that we're doing uh, in my current role. Yeah, I think what's next is how can we how can we develop technology to really help people sleep better? How can we measure sleep accurately is an important component. And bottom line, I just want to help people sleep better. And so whatever we can do to make that happen, that's where I'm going to be. I love it. I love it. Well, Amy, it's been amazing catching up with you today, learning more about your work. Where can my listeners find out more about you? I'm at Sleep for Sport on Instagram and Twitter. I also have a website that I'm just getting out there. It's called sleepintowin.com. Okay. So people can go there too. Nice. I'll make sure we get those in the show notes. But again, Amy, it's been great catching up with you today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Dr. Amy Bender. Really hope you enjoyed it. I know sleep is something that probably most of us struggle with at some point in time of our lives, whether it's falling asleep, staying asleep, questioning how much is really enough. So I hope all of those questions and more were answered for you here today. Now, if you're not already subscribed to the show, take two seconds out of your day and do that right now. Wherever you consume podcasts, go there. Doesn't matter. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, wherever you consume podcasts, subscribe right now so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care. <laughs>